This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'd like to acknowledge that we are gathered today on the land of the first and continuing custodians of Melbourne, the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I offer respect to their elders, both past and present, and through them to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But our main focus today is the life and the art of Vincent van Gogh, uh, and we're talking about the exhibition Van Gogh and the Seasons. We'll be joined by Dr. Ted Gott, the Senior Curator of International Art here at the NGV, who'll talk to us about Vincent's life and work and the exhibition and dispel a few myths for us along the way. We're also going to be joined a little bit later on in the program by Dr. Anthony White, who'll be talking about the myth of the troubled genius. We hear so much about Vincent's mental health impacting on his art and perhaps even leading to his artistic breakthroughs. Are these true? We'll find out. Uh, we'll also be joined by regular guests Ace Wagstaff and Ty Snaith for our Art Attack segment. They'll be reviewing the current Van Gogh and the Seasons exhibition and uh, giving their impressions of that. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne where we're talking about the exhibition Van Gogh and the Seasons. And uh, who was this artist, Vincent Van Gogh or Vincent Van Gogh? And why do we pronounce his name at least three different ways? Joining us to, uh, to answer these and other questions is Dr. Ted Gott, Senior Curator of International Art here at the NGV. Ted, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So, to begin with, why do we say Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh? Which one is correct or are all of them correct? All of them are correct in their own way. So if we're from Australia or Great Britain, we say Van Gogh. If we're from North America, we say Van Gogh. If we're from France or a francophone, we say Van Gogh. And uh, if we're from the Netherlands, we say Van Gogh. Okay. Now, apparently, even in Dutch, Van Gogh is quite hard to say. And Vincent Van Gogh found mispronunciation of his name such a common problem. Uh, prior to becoming an artist, he lived in Paris and in London, so he knew the various problems people had with saying Van Hock, and that's right, why apparently right from the beginning he signs his works of art simply Vincent. Okay. So why is Vincent such a significant artist? Because he's, one, he's not just a major artist, he's one of the most instantly identifiable and best-known artists uh, in the world. Absolutely. There's many ways to answer that question, but I would say that it's the magic power of his works in the last two and a bit years of his career when he moves to the south of France, where for some reason everything just clicks for him. And I think the best way that I can put it is to say that he stops looking at nature, stops painting an image of nature and starts painting what it's like to be part of nature. And those last works, or the works from the last two years of his career, have this electric energy, this pantheistic view of the world that's utterly irresistible and that make us feel that we are ourselves in communion with not only nature but the artist who made us feel that way. Now, there's an enormous amount of energy in those paintings. There's also a degree of turmoil, but that turmoil is something that we bring to the paintings, that we, we seem to... We know that... Uh, Vincent had a, a somewhat unhappy life at times. And do you think it's fair to say that the paintings themselves aren't imbued with, with turmoil or pain, but that's a lens through which we see them? I think it's a lens through which we see them. I don't see them as being imbued with turmoil. I see them as being imbued with energy. 
sometimes turbulent energy, and this is Vincent van Gogh channeling his belief that everything in nature is a living, breathing entity in and of itself. Every blade of grass, every cloud, every tree, every twig, every stream is part of the life force of the planet. And that's the pantheistic view that he comes to at the end of his career that charges his work with just this incredible turbulence. But that's actually more a state of ecstatic happiness than uh, mental turmoil, I would argue. Yeah. Now, we're going to be talking about the the myth of the troubled genius uh, a little bit later on in the program, but one of the the myths about Vincent van Gogh is that he painted when he was suffering from mental illness, and it's because of his struggles with mental illness that his paintings were so vibrant, so chaotic to some uh, contemporary eyes. That's not true, though, is it? He didn't no. paint when he was ill. He painted afterwards. Exactly. I mean, the very opposite is true. It's, it's certainly true that in the last several years of his life, he did suffer from mental health incidents. But it's also true that during those periods of personal uh, problems for him, uh, he did not create art. So he, particularly when he goes into the asylum in saint louis de provence uh, in May 1889, he stays there for a year and he does have incidents in which he's not aware of what he's doing. He has strange incidents where he eats paint, for example, and he's sort of switching on and off in various states of consciousness. But when he's in the altered state, uh, he is not able to make art at all. And it's only after he comes out of the altered state and gets his health back that he begins to create art. And we know all of this because he's writing almost every day to his brother Theo in Paris. So we know exactly what's going on. And he writes about how he's just come out of um, a situation in which he's not been aware of what he's been doing for several days, but now he's back on track and feeling able to draw again, etc. So nothing that Vincent van Gogh makes is made under the influence of uh, mental delusion or under the influence of um, excessive alcohol and certainly not under the influence of drug abuse either. So all those myths need to be thrown away. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Vincent's brother, Theo, uh, and I believe you're going to be reading uh, from Vincent's letters to Theo um, this Sunday, the 4th of June. That's right. Yes. yes. So uh, that is a free event as part of the exhibition and happening again on Sunday, the 25th of June, both days at midday. To come back to another myth about uh, the artist Vincent van Gogh, uh, we seem to think, for some reason, this myth endures that he only sold one painting in his lifetime, that he was not a successful artist. Again, this is a myth, it's not true, but why does the myth endure? Well, I don't know why myths endure. People, people love conspiracy theories and they love myths. I mean, uh, the truth often isn't um, sexy enough for them, perhaps. It's true that in uh, January 1890, Vincent van Gogh sold a painting called The Red Vineyard, at the exhibition of Les Vins, or the 20, an avant-garde art movement in Brussels who held an annual exhibition and they invited foreign artists, particularly those working in Paris, to exhibit with them each year. So he does sell the Red Vineyard. But it's also true that in 1884, he is commissioned to paint six paintings for the dining room of a wealthy goldsmith in Eindhoven, a man called Anton Hermans. So there he sells six paintings. He's also commissioned to create uh, 18 drawings of The Hague uh, by one of his uncles. Now, true, that's a helping hand up, but there he sells 18 works, albeit to a member of the family. There's also another way in which you can look at 
dispelling the myth by taking the view of the curator of this exhibition, Schavon Hochten, who reminds us that it was Vincent's brother Theo who persuaded him to become an artist when Vincent is at his wit's end at the age of 27. He's failed at everything he's tried to that point. Theo says, you've got a great interest in art, why don't you try and become an artist? Vincent takes up the challenge, and from that point onwards, Theo, who's a successful art dealer in Paris and relatively wealthy, accepts that he's taken away Vincent's ability to earn a living, you know, as a tradesman, or Vincent had tried being a, a bookseller, a school teacher, an evangelical preacher. Now he's turned to being an artist. Theo feels that he's responsible for having taken away his income, so Theo then sends him half his monthly salary for the next 10 years. And so Schrar likes to argue that, in fact, rather than only rather than the myth of him only selling one painting, uh, Vincent sold everything he ever made because in exchange for the monthly stipend, he sent everything he painted and drew to Theo in Paris. So he sold everything. So that's really turning the myth on its head. Absolutely. So the art dealer brother is essentially buying all the work and, and supporting his brother in that regard. Vincent's life is, as you've intimated, a, a chaotic one. He, he was a failure repeatedly. But also, in other ways, he was remarkable in that he essentially taught himself uh, art through collecting prints and so forth and learning about the great history of art. Uh, he expressed this religious passion uh, that began as a, a much more traditional Christian belief uh, and expressed that through his art in this kind of almost... Um, almost a pagan belief in, the, in the, the power of nature and that every tree is, a, is alive, a, a cloud is alive and so forth. So all of that's conveyed in the exhibition, but I wanted to ask about the way the exhibition is presented as well. Part of the, the, the joy of walking through it is that it's not a linear progression of work. It's not laid out chronologically. Works are contrasted so that you can see an early painting of a haystack, for example, and you look at it and go, well, it's, it's, it's a... A, a nice painting, but it's, it doesn't pop with that same vibrancy and colour and intensity. And then you walk around the corner and bang, there's suddenly one of those paintings from the later period. Why has the exhibition been constructed in this way? Well, I think it's a very clever way that constantly reminds us of the trajectory of Van Gogh's life and career. If we laid it out purely chronologically, it would be fair to say, I think, that the audience would move relatively quickly through the early Van Gogh, looking for the great works from the south of France, and they'd probably forget the early Van Gogh. Laying it out in order of the season, starting with autumn, and then going through winter, spring, and summer, and having works from every period in the artist's very short 10-year career, admittedly, but works from every part of his career in each season, we're constantly able to see the way his mind is shifting and developing and the way his eye is growing and his painterly finesse is, is changing and growing. So we're constantly reminded of the journey rather than moving quickly through works that are unfamiliar to us and going straight to um, the favourite chocolates in the box, as it were. Yeah, so it really reinforces that an exhibition like this is uh, an instruction manual into the development and the creation of an artist and their work. It's not just about the work itself. That's right. And one of the things I hope that people will learn from the exhibition and, and the related reading that they will do, hopefully, the, you know, the exhibition catalogue or searching on the web for more information about the artist, is a recognition of just what an incredibly intelligent man Vincent van Gogh was. He discovered as a teenager that he had a natural gift for languages. Throughout his whole life, he speaks absolutely fluently and writes uh, not only his native Dutch, but also German, French and English. He's an incredible consumer of literature. For example, during the several years he's living in London, 
Um, as a young man, he reads the complete works of Shakespeare, the complete works of Charles Dickens in English. Uh, later on, he'll read the complete works of uh, Emile Zola in French and uh, Victor Hugo, for example, uh, and the Goncourt brothers. He's also consuming contemporary Dutch literature at the same time, and he's writing about all of these in the letters that survive. And there are just under 900 letters to and from Vincent that survive throughout his life from um, his late teens through to his early death at 37. So we know an incredible amount about this man. And he's not just a painter. He's a wonderful gifted literary person. He's one of the greatest writers of the 19th century. That's why his letters uh, captivate us, because they're not only full of fascinating information about his life, but they are so beautifully written. He's a fascinating artist, a fascinating man, a polymath. Uh, it's fair to say he was, he was a genius. Without question. Yeah. Um, as a final question for you, Ted, um, obviously you're passionate about uh, Vincent van Gogh and indeed this exhibition, Van Gogh and the Seasons. Are you allowed to have a favourite painting in the exhibition? Well, my favourite changes every day, but I do have a couple of favourites. One of them is, the, is the, the painting that opens summer, and it's a simple image of a wheat stack in the hot summer sun. It's on loan from the Honolulu Museum of Fine Arts, and it shows us that moment in June 1888, when Vincent's art changes, when for the first time the temperature goes above 30 degrees Celsius. And for a man who's been raised in the Netherlands and lived in London, and it didn't get very hot in Paris in those days, this is a revelation for him. And here he feels the life force of nature. And this is the moment in his career when he's just about to explode and paint all of the great works that we love. And this is a moment in which, with his pantheistic views, he puts into this painting of the wheat stack the notion that um, nature is no longer in his eyes something that proves the existence of a god, but nature is Godhead itself. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. A painting called The Parsonage Garden at Newnan in the Snow. Uh, it's rather a sad image. It made me immediately think of how anyone must feel when they move back in with their parents, which is exactly what happened when it was being painted. But it's just one of many aspects of the life and work of artist Vincent van Gogh that we're focusing on today. One of the, I guess, the one of the great myths of Vincent van Gogh is that he was a mad genius, a troubled genius. And uh, joining us to talk a little bit more about that is Dr. Anthony White. Anthony, welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome. So you're going to be uh, in conversation at an event on Tuesday the 13th of June at 6.30pm here at the NGV in St Kilda Road, NGV International. It's a, a public talk called The Myth of the Troubled Genius. Why do we continue to focus on the, the mental health issues that Vincent van Gogh did indeed suffer, but why do we focus on them rather than the art that he created? It's a very good question, and I've asked myself that question quite a lot. There are a lot of different answers, and it depends on who you're talking about. Are you talking about now, or are you talking about 100 years ago? But if we talk about now, which is where we are, the role that art plays in our society, I think, is to show us an alternative vision of things, arguably, and the role that we grant to it has that sense of, well, it can't be normal. And, you know, it isn't just a business. It isn't just an everyday matter. It's something exceptional, something outside of normal. And because we tend to think of art in that way, and it isn't always like that, we have to remember, 
uh, we do tend to want to pour into the bucket called art all kinds of strange, exceptional, bizarre, wonderful and terrible concepts like illness, like the divine, for example, to take a different issue. And for that reason, um, that's basically, it's our concept of art, essentially, that leads us to down that pathway. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that uh, Vincent van Gogh is known for, it's, it's one of those things that you don't have to know much about art and the history of art to know that van Gogh uh, mutilated his own ear. Some people say he cut it off. Some people say he just cut, cut off the earlobe. Um, it's been suggested that uh, it was as part of a fight with a friend. Um, but those kind of events, the notion that he was this mad, troubled genius uh, and that his madness was what inspired him and his art, these kind of myths endure. Um, as we've heard earlier from uh, Ted Gott, the senior curator of international art here, they're untrue. But again, they endure. Why is it that you don't have to know anything about art, the history of art, or even more than the fact that Van Gogh painted sunflowers, for example. But you would know that, but mm -hmm. you would also know that he was famously mad. Yes, that's right. That's another question which has to do with the fact that uh, the, the idea of art that we have, that we have inherited and that we perpetuate, and it's not people like you and I perpetuating it alone, but it's it's the whole society and institutions like the National Gallery of Victoria and art experts and the market are absolutely obsessed with always explaining artwork purely in terms of the artist's biography and the interior state of mind of the artist. So that's one of the reasons that... Uh, when you have an artist whose own personal life is, let's be honest, completely fascinating, uh, the fact that he cut his own ear off is pretty hard to get past. I mean, I still just can't believe that he did it. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that because we have this strong desire to always talk about art in terms of the artist's biography or psychology or personal views, Van Gogh just is a gift because there's so much information about his personal life through his own letters. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of letters by him, which are I've really dedicated myself to reading them closely until this exhibition, and, I mean, I, I just can't stop reading them. They're absolutely fascinating. But to come back to the art, um, the reason why, you know, we, we just constantly know about his madness and his illness and all these sorts of things is that there's plenty of evidence of it in the letters and in other material which has come to light relatively recently. And I'm not saying that that's wrong um, because, you know, with myth, there's always a grain of truth in myth and um, our whole life is constructed around myths if want to get onto that topic but that's enough for another time the 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 fact is that um uh we don't have to talk about art as purely about the artist biography there are lots of other things that one could talk about um, mm. but we always talk about that yeah how would we diagnose vincent van gogh today do you think we can't um because you shouldn't in my view and in the view of many uh, historians of medicine and, and, and doctors besides, you cannot retrospectively diagnose a person. 
And the reason for that is because you cannot make a proper diagnosis in a, in a medical sense. You, you, you need to have the patient in front of you. Having said that, um, it's a fascinating parlour game. And also, as uh, James Bradley, who's a historian of medicine from the University of Melbourne, recently gave a lecture on this topic, and he said to me afterwards, look, I know we're not supposed to do this, but everybody's going to do it anyway. Uh, so then, then my role is to, uh, James Bradley was saying, my role is to sort of let's talk about that. So um, there are diagnoses which have been made, and to summarise them very quickly, it's not my area of expertise, but... Um, the, uh, uh, the Muse Van Gogh Museum recently published a book on this with an expert who said the most likely diagnosis is um, bipolar. And there are other theories about. One of them is that he had epilepsy, which is interesting because that's not a mental illness, importantly. Mm. It's a neurological condition. Um, people with epilepsy, you know, are not mad that they have a, uh, a neurological problem and uh, they have seizures. And also the classic idea of an epileptic having a seizure uh, and, you know, convulsing on the ground, which some of us may have witnessed or known someone, there are other forms of epilepsy which are not so strong. So it's pos it, it is conceivable that he did have epilepsy. In fact, that was a diagnosis he was given when he was first admitted to hospital. Um, I have my own views about that, but um, I personally don't find it very productive, actually, to diagnose the artisan. And I think it gets back to the two things I started talking about earlier. The problem of our concept of art is that it's absolutely beyond the pale, that it must, it must manifest something.